This isn't the sermon this morning, but do we believe, brothers and sisters, do we believe it when we tell someone that the best thing that we can do for them is pray for them? Do we believe it? Or do we simply say, I will pray for you as a way to get out of doing something or a way to ease our guilt about not being able to fix something? Or do we truly believe that if we will get on our knees and we will cry out to him that it is the best thing that we can be doing? All right, that's not the sermon. Let's move on. Yeah, yeah, some of you are like, oh, that would be a great sermon. We'd be out of here early. Turn to Numbers chapter 5 and chapter 6. That's where we'll be at this morning. We are continuing on with our sermon series in Numbers, looking at how Numbers, written down for us, Paul says, is an example of how to serve a holy God. In chapter 1, we looked at how serving a holy God was something that we could have confidence in because he keeps his promises. And we saw how he kept his promise to Israel to make them a great nation. We see in chapter 2 how God arranges his people, how he has order, how it is not an accident, the family that you were born into, how it is not an accident, the place and the community that you have been placed in, but rather God has put you right where he wants you. Last week, in looking at the Levites, We talked about how God has redeemed us, how he substituted our mistakes, how he substituted Jesus Christ for us for a price that we could not pay. And because of that, he has invited, and through that, he has invited us into ministry and how he has given each one of us different gifts and talents and placed us at different places so that we could minister to him and so that we could minister to the place that in the place that he has put us. This week, as we look at chapter 5 and chapter 6, we look at something a little bit different. We look at separation. When we think about the word holiness, we think about being set apart. And chapters 5 and chapter 6 begin to unfold that a little bit before us. And so that's where we're going to look at this morning. We're going to read the first four verses of Numbers, and then we're going to flip over to chapter 6 and read the beginning part of that as well, or the first 21 verses of that as well. And so if you would, if you are able to stand with us so that we may show honor to the word this morning, then we will read it together. We are looking first again at Numbers chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through the contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put outside the camp, as the Lord had said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. Turn over to chapter 6. We're going to read through verse 21 here. We're going to read a little bit more of this. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. 
all the days of his separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor, razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, shall not, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then let he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing and on the day, seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting and the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned by reason of the dead body and he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation bring a male lamb a year old for the for a guilt offering but the previous period shall be void because of his separation his separation was defiled. And this is the law for the Nazarite. When this time of separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall also its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of ram when it is boiled and unleavened loaf out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them in the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy portion for the priest together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite. But if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and as we read your word, Lord, we desire to know it. Lord, let it be the longing of our heart to not just simply read words on a page, to not simply hear them read to us, but Lord, help us desire to understand. Help us desire not only to understand, but to allow them to take root in our hearts so that we may act upon them. Father, help us not to be like the man who looks in a mirror and then walks away and forget what, forgets what he looks like. But rather, let us take what you teach us, let us take what you have said to us, and put it to application in our life. We pray this in the holy name of God. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I hope that as we 
went through this part of chapter 5 and the majority of chapter 6 that you begin to notice a theme, that you begin to notice a a clear repetition. In chapter 6, it is probably the most clear that you hear the word separation over and over and over again. In the beginning of chapter 5, you don't hear necessarily the word separation, but you hear the phrase put out repeated over and over again. Both of those kind of have the same meaning when we think about it. To put someone out is to separate them from others. And so we have this, this, pa- this passage. We have these two chapters. We have what we have read this morning, and we see this phrase and this word, put out, separate. So what, what does this mean for us? Because as we read, we, we don't often think about uncleanliness the way that the Israelites do. It's a foreign concept to us. And so it's kind of confusing. We read here, and if you read the rest of chapter 5, you read about confession and restitution, and you're like, okay, I don't, I don't know what's going on there. And then you read the test for adultery, and you really go, I don't know what's happening here. And then you turn over to chapter 6, and you read about Nazarites, and you're like, okay, like, that's great. I, oh, what? Uh, huh? And we begin to to question and so we we kind of tend to read on and we don't stop and wonder at these things but as we look deeper to them i think what we're going to see is a great example for us a great reminder of the holiness of the god that we serve a great reminder that we are to be separate so let's first look here at the first few verses that we looked at together verses one through four of chapter five the first thing we see here is a separation from the unclean. We see a separation from the unclean. These verses, by the way, are closely attached to Leviticus. If you go back and read Leviticus chapters 11 through 16, you're going to see a greater explanation of what's unclean and what's not unclean. And we're not going to dive deeply today into that subject. Uh, we'll, we'll hit on that another day about what made things unclean and what didn't and why that was important. The basic principle that you need to know, though, is that when someone was declared unclean by either something that happened to them or by an action that they did, that they were unable to worship. They were unable to worship. And not only were they unable to worship, but in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, they were cut off from the community. Not only was it a worship thing, but it was part of being the community, part of fellowship with their fellow brothers and sisters of the Israelites. And so oftentimes they were cut off. Why is this here? We see in in verses 1 through 4, we read through this and we think, man, what is going on here? Why are these people being separated? Why must they live outside the camp in either tents of, of, of shame or in caves? Or why must they be separated? Well, the first thing that I I think we need to understand that we see here in the text is ultimately disease and death are caused by sin. Ultimately, disease and death are caused by sin. They are a reminder of the corruption of sin. Think about that for a minute. Now, what I'm not saying here, what I am not saying here is that if someone is sick, there is a sin that they have been uncommitted, they have unrepentant of. Okay, I'm not saying that if uh, someone gets cancer, that there is some that you need to be like, well, friend, you just haven't repented of sin. And so help me if you use my name when you say that we are going to have a talk. Okay, that is not what I'm saying. Okay, 
Now, Paul tells us that there are times when God uses that at discipline, but by and large, that is not what we see in Scripture. What we do understand from Scripture, though, is that in an indirect way, all of our sin leads to the corruption of God's creation, which includes disease and includes death. And God can't stand it. Let me... Let me put it in a different way. I've been, I've been struggling with this concept for a couple of weeks, and it's been heavy on my heart about how our sin has corrupted the world that we live in and this idea of why God would separate and why he can't stand it. And Melissa and I were watching a television show this week, and in this show, um, in this show, some of the people that were part of it visit an orphanage and the orphanage and a, and a medical center and in this at this medical center are all of these children who have been touched by AIDS whether it be their parents have passed away or they themselves have the disease and it was heartbreaking it was heartbreaking and and AIDS is one of those diseases that especially in the past we have looked at and said well it's because of sin, and, and we try, have try, drawn a correlation. And, but as I sat there and I watched these children who obviously were innocent of anything to, to contract that disease or have it touch their lives, this thought ran through my head. And it broke me. My sin... My sin contributed to that disease. My sin contributed to the corruption of God's world where we now experience those things. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever put it in those personal terms? That our breaking of God's perfect law, our rebellion against Him has brought about these horrible things in our lives. Again, I'm not saying that we can draw a line straight from A to B in terms of this person got sick because of this sin. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that all of us collectively, our sin contributed to the corruption of the world and contributed to the things that we see around us. It should make us hate sin. It should make us detest it. And when we see God put these individuals outside the camp, it's a reminder, it's a reminder of our own sin. It's a reminder of their sin as a people that God would not tolerate it. And that's our second point. God will not dwell with the unclean. God will not dwell with the unclean. He says there in verse 4, or sorry, in verse 3, you shall put both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they might not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. This passage takes particular interest to us when we think about that now as believers he dwells with us now his spirit dwells within us as believers 
how much more then God cannot dwell with the unclean? How much more can God not dwell with sin? He will not tolerate it. He will not make room for it. But rather, he will call it out in our lives. He will call us as believers to repentance. And he will tell us as well to cast it out. It has no place in our lives. So he, set, he calls for a separation from the unclean. He also calls from a separation from the culture. He calls from a separation from the culture. In my own life, I, I see this. We as a culture have become numb to so many things. And a lot of it has to do with our entertainment. The television shows that we watch begin to introduce concepts and ideas, and we start to become numb to those things. I can remember a time when if you saw a murder committed on TV, that that was shocking. You were like, what? That person died? I mean, and someone killed them, and you were just taken aback. Now we see it, and we go, eh, big deal. It's just a television show. My father always, always convicts me because we'll be watching a show and it'll be, we'll be watching like a contest or something and someone will use the Lord's name in vain and my dad literally looks like he's going to throw up. And I think, how many times do I hear that? And I just, because I've watched it so much, because I hear it so much that I don't even think about it. We become numb to the culture around us. And yet, throughout Scripture, what we see is God calling us out of that and saying, no, you need to be different. You need to look different. You need to see these things and understand them for what they are. And God gives two examples to Israelites of this. First, we have the confession and restitution. We have confession and restitution. Now, this on its face looks pretty simple. All right? You have the idea that if someone wrongs another person, that they are to go to them and, and not only make up what they have done, but then to give extra for the harm that they may have caused. That makes sense. But in the world around them, that wouldn't have made sense. It would have been like, get away with what you can get away with. Take what you can take. If no one catches you, then why should you turn yourself in? God calls the Israelites to be different. He says, no, if you know, if you realize that this has happened, then you go make it right. The second test maybe is even, or the second re, uh, example of being different from the culture is maybe even more stark. It was not uncommon in this day and time for there to be tests of innocence and guilt. For example, you have in Africa at roughly the same time that this is being written, and, and really this continued for a long time, it was not uncommon for when there was a murder and no one could figure out who, who had committed the murder, for them to call the witch doctor into the tribe and he would get a pot of boiling water and he would look around the circle at all the members of the tribe and he would point to someone and say, I believe being led by the spirits, not spirit by the way, spirits, that this is the guilty party and they were then forced to stick their hand in that pot of boiling water. If they pulled their hand out, 
and nothing had happened, then they were innocent. If they pulled their hand out and the flesh had melted away, they were guilty and then they were condemned of murder, which had, you know, obvious consequences. Which of those do you think was most likely to happen? Okay? Not, and so we see it there and we think, oh, that's ludicrous. In, uh, in other texts, we see another test... Okay, in another historical text, we see another test for adultery. In that case, the woman was brought by her jealous husband to the leaders of the community or the priests of, of that other religion, and a hot metal rod was taken out of the fire, and she was to grab onto that metal rod. If she could grab onto it without harming herself, she was innocent. If she grabbed onto it and her flesh melted, she was guilty of adultery and then faced the consequences. Before we think that this is a long time ago, let's think about the witch trials in the early in our own history. You throw a woman in the water, if she drowns, then she was innocent, or bad. If she floats, she's a witch and we burn her. Okay? Poor lady. And so we look at those and we think, oh, those are ludicrous. And yet this is what the culture says was right. This is what everyone around them was saying. This is okay. This is acceptable. This is what we should do. God says, no, we're not going to do that. You're going to be different. Now, this is an odd ceremony. I'm not going to say it's not. It's an odd ceremony. And there are parts of it that are difficult for us to understand. But at its heart, this is what happens. A man believes that his wife had been unfaithful. He brings her to the priest. The priest takes dirt from the temple floor, holy dirt, mixes it with water in an earthen bowl, leads the lady in a vow, basically saying, if, the, if I am guilty, then this will happen. If I'm innocent, this will happen. And then she drinks the water mixed with the dirt. If she is innocent, nothing happens. If she is guilty, she is stricken with a physical deformity of which we are still not certain. Okay, as, as readers of this passage, we are still not sure exactly what's happening here. But it's some sort of visible, clear physical deformity if she's guilt, guilty. Now, my wife has a saying that she repeats from time to time. God made the dirt and the dirt don't hurt. Okay? Drinking water mixed with dirt should produce what? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, if you have a good immune system is what I'm hearing back, okay? It should produce absolutely nothing. It was an act of God for there to be that physical deformity. It was an act of God to show guilt there. And when you look at that compared to the rest of the culture, there is a clear difference, yes? There is a clear difference. And so God takes these two examples of social justice, really, and says, you are going to be different. You are going to look different. You're going to be separate from those around you. Not in only in who you worship, but in how you worship me. I don't want to get too far because I'll get ahead of myself in the sermon, but brothers and sisters, we have a culture around us today that is saying that obviously ludicrous things are okay. 
things that obviously make no sense are just fine. And they are continually, we are continually bombarded with that message. And some of us and some of our brothers and sisters have swallowed that hook, line, and sinker. We are called to be different even when the culture says this is what's right. So we have separation from the unclean. We have separation from culture. And now, here in chapter 6, we have something a little different. We have separation towards God. See, when you move away from one thing, you're, you're naturally going to move towards something else. God is saying, you need to separate yourself from sin. You need to separate yourself from the culture around you that is leading you the wrong direction. And then immediately after that, he says, and this is the calling to, to move towards me. A calling to move towards a holy God. And we have the Nazarites. A couple of things about the Nazarites. The Nazarites separate them, separated themselves to serve God. They separated themselves to serve God. We're not given exactly what this looks like because a Nazarite could come from not only the priestly tribe, not only from the Levites, but it could be any of the Israelites. However, we know that obviously that only the Levites were to serve at the temple or at the tabernacle of meeting. And so we're not exactly sure what they separated themselves for other than just service to the Lord, whatever the Lord would have them to do. And they separated themselves from holiness so that they could focus upon God, focus upon who he was and how he would have them to live. We see examples of this in Scripture. It says that men and women can both be Nazarites, but we don't see any women listed as Nazarites. We do see Samson, we see Samuel, and then we see John the Baptist as Nazarites in Scripture. We also see it recorded outside of Scripture, recorded. We have the historian Josephus records there being Nazarites even in the time of Jesus. And so we see this happening, these people separating themselves. We also understand, as we read through this passage, that there was great personal cost. There was great personal cost towards the Nazarites. Sorry, I somehow skipped a slide there, but there is great personal cost. They were to, at the end of their time, they were at, at the end of the time, they were to give a series of uh, sacrifices. And as you read through, and I encourage you to read back over the end of chapter, or the, the ending part of chapter 6, you're going to see they offer multiple sheep, multiple grain offerings. This was not something that was done cheaply. It reminds us in many ways of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. In the same way, any one of you who decides not to give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Following Christ comes with commitment. It comes at many times with cost. Let's go back a slide. What did the Nazarites separate? How did the Nazarites separate themselves, though? They separated themselves so that they could serve God, they, that we understand that there was a great cost to it. But how did they separate themselves towards God? First, they separated themselves in the form of the grapevine. We see there at the begin, towards the beginning of chapter 6 that the Nazarites were not only to not drink wine, but they weren't to have anything from the grapevine. 
No grapes, no raisins, no grape seeds, no skins of grapes, nothing from the grapevine. In essence, in many ways, they were separating themselves from luxury. They were separating themselves from luxury. From the things that so often distract us from serving a holy God. So they separated themselves from the grapevine. Second, they separated themselves by not cutting their hair. They didn't cut their hair. They were to allow it to grow the entire time. Now, most of the time, now Samson, we know, was never to cut his hair. He was a Nazarite for life. For most Nazarites, it was a given period. There was a set time frame that they dedicated themselves in this manner. And so during that time period, they were to let their hair grow, and they were not to cut it. Not only were they not to cut it, but they were to, from what we see here and in other places, they were to not braid it. It was just to set loose on their shoulders, okay? So you see, like, in the, in the chapter 5, what we see is that most of the time women would kind of braid their hair or they would put their hair up off, off of their shoulders. And to let their hair down was to, to show grief or shame or to set themselves apart for other people to know. This was the visual understanding. This was a visual cue for others around them to know something is happening here. This growing of the hair and letting it lay loose, it was a visual sign that they had separated themselves for a purpose. And then lastly, they separated themselves from death. They separated themselves from death. Again, we remind ourselves, as we reminded ourselves at the beginning of chapter 5, that ultimately death comes from the corruption of sin in this creation. Death was never, you'll hear me say this at, at different funerals, death was never meant to be a part of God's creation originally. It was introduced because of the sin of mankind. And so they were to separate themselves from death. And not only were they to do that, but they were to do it at a, at a level that is hard for us to understand. You'll read there in verse 6, he is to separate himself to the Lord and he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or his mother, for brother or sister. No family members, was he, for no family member was he to violate this principle, this vow. If his son died or her son died or her mother or her father or his brother or his sister, it didn't matter. They were not to even go near the body. We read in text outside of Scripture that this meant, or they understood this to meant they didn't go to the funeral. Think about that for a minute. Can you imagine... Being a Nazarite, and your son dies while you're under that vow, and you're not even able to go to the funeral. This is a heavy call. It's a heavy vow to make. And yet in Matthew 10.37, Jesus says, Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me it's not worthy of me. It's a reminder to us, brothers and sisters. 
a reminder that God is our lone focus. God alone is the one that is to be our devotion. He speaks in other in another passage. Jesus says, "If you do, do not hate your mother or father," and he's speaking in hyperbole there. He doesn't literally desire for you to hate your family. He desires for you to love your family. But he desires for you to understand both here in the Nazarite vow and in Jesus' own teaching that he comes first. I I love my wife deeply. And I would do anything for her. But she is not the one that satisfies my being. She is not the one that completes me. She is not the one that ultimately can comfort me in a way that the world does not understand. She is not and cannot be my full source of joy. And for me to ask her to do any of those things is unfair. Because God alone does those things. God alone can be my joy when there is no joy in life. God alone is my fulfillment. God alone must be my satisfaction. He is the one that completes me. And if I search for that anywhere else, all other things will fall short. But here's the grand truth of all that. That when I love Christ and I see Him in that manner and I pursue God as all of those things, it allows me to love her better. It allows our relationship to be stronger. It allows her to love me better when when she looks to him as well. And it allows us and allows our relationship to be the picture of the gospel that it was intended to be. It makes our relationship that much more precious. It's not a bad thing to say that she is not number one in my life. It's the best thing that I could say. And I pray that if the Lord decides someday to bless us with children, that we would say the same thing about them. They are not the completion of our lives. They are not our full joy, though I'm sure they will bring joy into our lives. They are not our fulfillment. They are not our hope. They are not our assurance. They are great blessings. But He alone is those things. We are called to be separate. So what is our example here? And we'll finish with this. I know we're running close, but our example to serve a holy God. We must understand that we are to be separate from sin. To serve a holy God, we must understand that we are to be separate from sin. Now, let me let me encourage you maybe with this. You're never going to do that perfectly this side of heaven. You're never going to do that perfectly this side of heaven. You're always going to have a sin issue. One of my friends describes it this way, and I think I've shared this with you before, but he always describes our hearts as a pool table that is misused, as so many of us do. But he describes it as a pool table, and it's like you go down in the basement, 
and you're in the dark and you're trying to find something and you realize that the pool table is just this cluttered mess and the flashlight shines on the first thing and it's a pile of books and so you put that away and then you shine it and now you can use that little portion but now it shines on the next part and it's some laundry and so you put that away and now you have a little bit more room to do something that it was actually intended to do with. In the same way, the Spirit looks at our hearts and He shines it on our heart and at first maybe it's, Maybe it's an indulgence in something. Maybe you watch too much TV or you like Mountain Dew a little bit too much or whatever the case may be. He shines that on your heart and he says, this, this needs to go. And so you take care of that part and then he shines it on another part. And eventually you have more and more of your heart that is available to be used the way that God intended it to be used. All that to be said this though, we must hate sin the way that he hates it. We must see it the way that he sees it and we must run from it. Let us not tolerate it. Let us not dwell with it. Let us not make room or excuse for it. If we are to serve a holy God and if we are to be holy as he is holy, then we must separate ourselves from it. Second, let us separate from the world. Now, obviously, we are never, we are not saying here that we can, we should be monks or nuns who build a wall and separate and cut ourselves off but rather let us understand that the culture desires to lead us a direction that god would not have us to lead. let us be different let us see that difference in one another and let the culture let those around us see the difference so that it may point and shine a light to the greatness of the god that we serve to the greatness of a god who has loved us well Which leads to the last point. Let us separate ourselves towards God. We have been called to be holy as he is holy. We have been called to put all other things behind him. We have been called to serve him. And we do so in the light of the glory of our risen Savior. We don't do so out of checking off a list, we don't do so because it's just there. We do so because we have a Christ, we have a God who has shown us great love, who saved us from great consequence, who has done things beyond our own imagination. And it should dwell in us, it should build up in us that we should desire to serve him back, to give him everything that we are. And when we do that, we will find great blessings. We will find life the way it was intended to be lived. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response. Maybe this morning as you have been listening, God has been convicting you of a sin. There's something in your life that he is saying, you need to separate yourself from this. You need to repent to confess it to God and then to say, I am not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to go this other direction. Then make that decision now. Maybe this morning you need to say, you know what? I have bought into this culture truth. I have been allowed myself to become numb to what culture says is right. Maybe this morning you need to make a commitment that I am. I'm going to separate myself from that. For some of you, maybe that means getting rid of your TV. I know, that hurts. Okay? Maybe for some of you it means being more careful about you what you watch. Maybe it's the music you listen to. Maybe it's 
the activities that you take part in. Maybe it's not any one thing. Maybe it's just the amount of time that you give to any one thing. Are all of those things together? Maybe this morning you just need to separate, you need to make a commitment to separate yourself to him. In whatever manner that looks like. Maybe it's for the first time. Maybe it's just coming back. Then you do that this morning. Let me pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we are reminded this morning that we serve a holy God. And that you take these things seriously. Lord, sin is not a joking matter to you. You have watched it corrupt your creation. You have paid for our sins with the blood of Jesus Christ, God incarnate. You have watched it rip apart people and relationships. Lord, it's sin is no joking matter. It is something that we, we should take deadly serious. We should not allow it to just dwell. We should want to be rid of it. Father, as we hear your word, help us to respond. To not just listen, but to, to know it and to allow it to bear fruit. Father, use this time for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.